This is the Foot in the Box podcast for the week of Monday, April 18th. Hello and welcome to episode 46 of the A Foot in the Box podcast. My name is Peter Elliott. And I'm Paul Elliott. We are coming to you from Champaign, Illinois. This is your first week listening to the podcast. We are twin brothers uh, that live here in Champaign, Illinois, home to the University of Illinois. And uh, we do this podcast once a week during the season. Um, yeah, so thanks for joining us. Paul, how's it going? It's going awesome. This has been, I, I think, the best weather weekend uh, all year so far in Champaign. Definitely. It's starting to feel like uh, baseball weather. It is. Um, absolutely. Uh, thanks to Nelly for our intro song. Our Nelly fact this week is that he is a vegetarian. Wow. As of recently? Or did uh, Wikipedia not provide that? It wasn't Wikipedia. I just Googled Nelly fun facts, and that was one of them. Um, so thanks to Nelly for the intro song. Um, and one of us... We'll be singing that song towards the end of the season, so stay tuned for that um, later on in the podcast. Uh, look around baseball, Paul. What uh, what caught your eye this past week? A um, couple things. Uh, I think Adam Wainwright has sort of been one of the um, the biggest surprises for me. Really? You know, coming off surgery last year, missed almost the entire season. Um, a lot of people kind of projecting him to at least be an above-average starter. This year, and he has been one of the worst pitchers in baseball. Hmm. Um, through his first three starts, he has an 8.27 ERA. And yesterday, we're recording this on Sunday, he gave up seven earned runs in five innings to the Reds, who are one of the worst teams in baseball. Uh, they've played pretty well so far this year. Same hmm. record as the Cardinals. Um, so I just think that's uh, that's not good for the Cardinals. You know, they they've been getting other guys to pitch in early so far this year, but. Uh, for them to make a run in the World Series, they're going to have to have a good Wainwright. Yeah, he's. I hadn't thought of putting him on this list. I think with early uh, season uh, reactions, I always react more strongly to positive results rather than negative. Hmm. So who are your positive guys? Well, so like you know, Granky's negative, but he's only started three times. Like Wainwright's only started three times. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I try not to make reactions based on negative things but the positive stuff stands out more so for me uh vince velasquez of the phillies uh struck out 16 uh didn't walk any in a three-hit shutout against the padres this past thursday um it's only the seventh time a pitcher has done that um and by that i mean a shutout 16 strikeouts and no walks max scherzer randy johnson roger clemens who did it twice carrie wood and dwight gooden um, Man, pretty good company. Yeah, or the other guys in the list. Um, uh, Velasquez, if you're unfamiliar, he came over to the Phillies in a trade before the season for uh, reliever Ken Giles from the Astros. So, and a, another uh, positive storyline so far this year, Daniel Murphy. I feel like not. I haven't seen a ton of stuff written about him, mm-hmm. but he's played awesome. He's still playing out of his mind, mm-hmm. kind of reverting back to his Cubs NLCS um, uh, terror. He's... His on-base percentage through yesterday was 571. Um, I it's think. second in baseball. Yeah, so he's to been, Dexter Fowler. Yeah, Fowler's been amazing too. Mm-hmm. On the same day as Velasquez, another impressive performance was Jaime Garcia. He struck out 13 and walked none for the Cardinals. So that might counter some of your Wainwright uh, hate. If you're curious, uh, strikeouts and walks. League-wide are both up this year pretty significantly so far. So pitchers are walking more and striking out more than they did last year. Uh, Bryce Harper uh, also caught my eye. He is, uh, as of Sunday, he had homered in three straight games. I'm not sure if he homered again on Sunday. Uh, That's five for the season, and he leads baseball in slugging percentage. Um, And like I said, Fowler leads in on-base with a 5.53 on-base percentage. Um, Yeah, and from a team perspective – the Nationals, I say the Nationals and the Cubs are probably the two best teams through their first 10 games. Yeah, the, the Nats were 9-1 Yep, to start the season. 
And even I looked at run differentials and Cubs are obviously out of this world. They're like plus 40, Mm -hmm. but then the Nationals are second and they're right around plus 30. So they've been almost as dominant. Yep. Uh, Your guy last week, Trevor Story, uh, did not do so well this past week. We jinxed him. You jinxed him. Uh, Hey, you said you wrote the headline. Peter writes the headlines, Paul writes the columns. I just met on the podcast last week you were talking about how great he'd been. Uh, Five for 21 with 12 strikeouts this week. So it looks like pitchers have figured him out. I say that, and he'll probably homer against the Cubs on Sunday. But kind of came back to earth this past week. We'll see uh, you know, what's more true of him the first week or the second week. Uh, one other slow start I'm looking at from a team perspective is the Astros. Uh, what's their record? Uh, they were 4-8 and eight going into yesterday. Second worst run differential in the American League. And I was looking at you know why that's the case. And other than Dallas Keuchel, who's actually had a – Really good start. You know, Cy Young winner last year. Their other four starters, their ERA is six. And uh, Doug Fister is one of those, and he has been wide up, right up there near Wainwright in terms of uh, bad pitching so far this year. So they're a team that a lot of people projected. I think Sp- Sports Illustrated had them winning the World Series, um, but they've had a, a bad start. Uh, one last player note, uh, Jake Arrieta. Um, you know, as a Cubs fan, you kind of expect him to do great, but you don't really think in the context of uh, how great he's been historically. Uh, so last year, obvi- you know, he won the Cy Young, obviously had that great stretch, um, but I had kind of forgotten about it. With the, you know, he didn't do so well to end the playoffs, um, and then just the off season um, kind of broke it up. He's in a streak right now of 23 consecutive quality starts, and that's uh, second behind Bob Gibson's 26 in 1967 and 1968. Um, so only three more to go for Arrieta to, to tie Gibson. And at Wrigley Field especially, he's been dominant. Um, he has a scoreless inning streak at Wrigley of 48 and two-thirds innings. And again, um, he's right up there with Gibson. Uh, Arrieta actually has a record on this one. Gibson is second to Arrieta at 37, scoreless at Wrigley. Um, so when you're mentioned next to Bob Gibson, you're in some pretty elite um, territory. So Arrieta has been uh, dominant, three three wins to start this year, and been pretty dominant in all three games that he's pitched. Yeah, Arrieta has been great, and Chicago baseball in general has been really good. Definitely. Cubs, you mentioned 9-1, and one, run differential of near plus 40. And the White Sox actually have been decent, not as good as the Cubs, but 8-3 um, and three and playing really well, getting really good pitching. Definitely. Yeah, they're, uh, they are 17-5 and five this year. Um, and we have a listener email that flows naturally from this. So 17 and five, one of the best starts in Chicago baseball history, really. Um, when you combine the two teams and Scott, uh, from Illinois, uh, writes in with this following question. It's a twofold question, uh, one question for each of us. Uh, his question to you, Paul, we'll do that one first. He says, uh, I would be interested in hearing about the state of your current Sox fanhood as a Sox fan myself. I would never consider jumping ship, but it has been admittedly hard over the past offseason to be a Sox fan with all the hype on the other side of town. So, Paul, how would you respond to, respond to that? Yeah, thanks for the question, Scott. It's always nice to hear from other Sox fans. There aren't too many in central Illinois. I would say my biggest issue as a Sox fan uh, is not feeling great about the kind of the overall direction of the team. Um, like Even after an 8-3 and three start where they're playing well, in the back of my mind, there's always this lingering thought um, that it's fool's gold. And especially with the Cubs being on the other side of town and seeing them draft well and have just this amazing depth. And then to look at the White Sox roster, I just see so many holes. And the season just has to go perfect for them to have a, a chance at the World Series. And um, each offseason, they're kind of just cobbling a, a team together, hoping that um, you know all the pieces might fit together, whereas the Cubs seem to have more of a firm direction and just a overall strategy and a philosophy where the White Sox, I don't know that they have that. Um, so yeah, I would, I would say like you, I'm not going to jump ship. I'll be a Sox fan for the rest of my life, but it, it is hard, um, especially without that firm direction. And then, uh, Scott also writes, Pete, this is a question for you. Uh, Peter, you've been a guy that's followed them through the highs and lows talking about the Cubs, but it seems like a lot of people are just jumping on with the hype around the team this season. How does it feel to be a true Cubs fan this season amongst, from my perspective, a city filled with bandwagoners? That, uh, that's also a good question. Um, he is right that I have been a Cubs fan through the highs and the lows. Um, 
and uh, I don't know. It's it's this is a question that you know any team that goes through bad times and then has a period of um, sustained success um, kind of has to answer this question. You know, like the Blackhawks, for instance, another one. Uh, they were bad for a while, then they got really good, and now have become like this icon of uh, of Illinois sports. And you know, you walk around Illinois campus here in Champaign, and you'd, you'd see more Blackhawks gear than anything else. Um, so as the Cubs have become good again, um, that's definitely something I've thought about. Um, does it take away from my excitement around the team to know that uh, all these other fans re- um, were maybe critical of the team or just didn't care during the last um, five years or so and now are jumping on? Um, and just to give some context, uh, from 2009 to 2014, didn't make the playoffs any of those years. Um, they went 419 and 542. Mm. So they just won 43% of their games. Um, so that is the stretch. You know, th- those were the low times, um, in 2015 and now are, are definitely the good times. And I think what you have to tell yourself as a fan is just, it doesn't matter what other people, um, how they view the team or what their reaction to the team is. It's, you know, can you enjoy it yourself as I watch Cubs games, them winning? Is that, satisfying to me as a fan of the team and it is and so that that allows me to kind of black out other stuff and even to be excited when other people are excited that the cubs are winning do you feel like the cubs success has infiltrated even like non sports areas of your life like at work are people talking about the cubs right now uh right now it's more i'll believe it when i see it when they won you know in reference to a world series like oh Mm -hmm. they got a really good young talented team but you know, I'll believe it when I see it in terms of a World Series win. So that's the next step is to win a World Series. Um, but I think with baseball more than other sports, people don't care during the season really. I mean, except the diehards. And so that helps a lot. Like, you know, Dexter Fowler's early season success this year isn't being talked about widely with, you know, fair weather fans. Um, they just know that the Cubs are winning. And so there's even small things that you can pick pick out of your team um, stats like that and, and storylines like that that you know as a diehard but that the Fairweather fans won't and your enjoyment of the team I think is heightened because of those those storylines. I will uh, say I, I think it's good for our podcast when the Cubs <laughs> are good because, well, you are in a better mood and then I think just more people that uh, were around uh, w- want to like listen and learn more about baseball. Yeah, when your team isn't doing well, it's hard to, to talk about baseball or think about baseball during the day. I will say one negative of more people liking the Cubs is like ticket prices are way higher. So it's much harder mm. to get to Wrigley for a, a decent price because of that. But when you do go to Wrigley, you know that it's going to be a good time because the atmosphere is, is always good. What's an upper deck seat at Wrigley costs these days? I mean, still for like midweek games in April, it would be really cheap. But for like weekend games, I would guess like definitely more than 50. Wow. Um, especially during, you know, the summer. All right. Well, that does it for our opening segment here. Uh, looking ahead on the podcast, we've got a good one in store for you. Uh, Paul and I will each talk about an article for a, out of the box uh, this past week. Uh, Paul has his stat segment. He'll look at the three worst rookie of the year campaigns of all time. Um, is that right, Paul? Uh, that's correct. It's just the worst careers of rookie of the year winners. Okay. Look forward to that. Then we have Sounds of the Game. Uh, we will be looking at Red Barber, uh, old Brooklyn Dodgers announcer. He's got a pretty interesting story. Um, and then we'll do the baseball profile. It's back after the off season, And this week we're going to look at Jackie Robinson, who's been in the news a lot recently. Um, one, because we celebrated the anniversary of him uh, breaking the color line in baseball. Uh, his debut was on April 15th, so this past Friday uh, we celebrated that, or baseball celebrated that, and then also Ken Burns did a two-part documentary on Jackie Robinson. Paul, did you have a chance to watch that? You know, I watched about 30 minutes of it, and then I uh, had to do something with Benson, but um, and we don't have DVR, unfortunately, so I, w- I will watch it, but I have not watched it yet. Yeah. I caught, it's a two-part thing, so four hours total, so I caught like an hour and a half of the first one. But I'm, I'm looking forward to watching the rest this next week. Um, so that baseball fr- profile is actually a two-part thing as well. So this week, um, we, we are going to talk about Robinson's career up until 
uh, his major league debut, and then next week we will finish that by looking at his playing career and then his life after his debut in the majors. Um, and then we'll end the podcast this week uh, with our normal segments. Paul's got an interesting baseball name for us. I have a Yahoo answer of the week, and then we'll pick our teams uh, for the following week. So should be a good podcast, and hope you uh, stick around. Next up, out of the box. All right, this is Paul, and the article that I read this week was by Grant Brisby of SB Nation, one of my favorite baseball writers. He is hilarious. And the article he wrote has a long headline. It was, what would it take for a baseball team to set a new MLB record for wins in a season? Encourage you to go read it for yourself, but a quick synopsis. Um, so after seeing uh, the Golden State Warriors NBA team break the record for wins. Do you think anyone listens to our podcast that didn't know the Warriors were an NBA team? Yeah, that's probably, probably true. Um, Brisby, who's actually based in the Bay Area. Uh, ponders what it would take for a baseball team to break the single season win record. And, uh, it's not really a analysis piece. Like he doesn't, he didn't really do a ton of research digging into what are the specific things it would take. It's more just kind of him pondering and his thoughts. So he, he first says it's easier to dominate in basketball than baseball, which I agree with. Um, it's, I guess it's, uh, easier to build a dominant team in basketball. You know, uh, only five players versus nine. Smaller roster, which means it's easier to accumulate a great group of players. You know, think back to the Celtics of the late 2000s where they are the worst team in the NBA. They trade for Kevin Garnett and Ray Allen, and they become the best team. In baseball, it's just much harder to do something like that. Um, But the two best teams in MLB history were the 1906 Cubs. Mm Mm-hmm. And the 2001 Mariners, and they both win. Do you regular know, season. Regular season. Do you know how many games they won? 116. That's correct. Um, and he made a good point, Brisby did, that that 116 isn't nearly as high profile or memorable um, as the Bulls' 72 win season. I, I think most NBA fans before this year knew the record was 72. I don't know if most baseball fans would know. Eh, yeah, I agree. I thought about that. Um, I think one of the reasons is that the Mariners – I uh, didn't win the World Series that year. Yeah, that's a good point. And then... Even that team, they didn't have any of their superstars. People forget they didn't have A-Rod, Griffey, or Johnson. I, th- I thought they had one of them. Mm-mm. Wow. Ichiro, right? Yep, that's correct. And then the 1906 Cubs, like, no one's going to remember that. So the I think everyone knows the Bulls did it because it's such a recent team, and, like, best player of all time is on that team. Mm-hmm. So if the, if the Mariners would have done that with, like, A-Rod or Griffey and won the World Series, I think it would be a little more... The, the point that Brisby makes with that is that if, say, the Cubs were to approach, if they had 110 with a week and a half left, there wouldn't be nearly as much pressure on them to go for the record hmm. as there was for the Warriors to go for 73. Maybe. Um, but then he uh, he says, uh, in order to break the MLB win total of 116, a team would have to accumulate, A, a collection of the best players in baseball, B, have the best seasons of their career, C, while getting more than a little lucky, and D, surrounding their best players with a remarkable depth, and then E, avoiding injuries. So just, uh, he says it's extremely unlikely that we'll see a team break that in our lifetime, and, um, you know, a team hasn't won more than 100 games in the last four years. I don't think a team has won more than 103 in the last 10 years, Um, so... Uh, I would agree with Brisby that it's pretty mm-hmm. unlikely. What do you think? Two thoughts. One, no one thought the the Bulls record would go down. In Simmons' basketball book, he talks about the most unbreakable basketball records, and like fourth wow. was the hmm. Bulls' 72 wins. And I think all of us would, you know, before this Warriors team, like ask us three or four years ago, I think we all would have said, no way anyone tops that. All these reasons why the NBA could never happen. Um and then two, in baseball now, there's parity, but there's also teams that are tanking. So, like, I bet someone breaks 100 this year. Um, yeah. I bet someone wins 105 this year. And more and more teams, I think, are tanking. Um, and so that creates uh, an opportunity to uh, to win a lot more games than you used to be able to. Yeah. Uh, so you think, someone, you think the Cubs won 105 this year? I didn't say that. I said I think someone can. You think the Cubs are the best team? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. 
but just something to keep an eye on. I, yeah, I, I agree with you though. The this is one of the more top heavy leagues, especially the National League, we've seen in a while. Do you think a major league team could ever go undefeated? <laughs> uh, no, and uh, if you haven't, maybe we can. No, yeah, we're, we got it covered later. Okay. All right, my article for Out of the Box um, has to do with a topic that I had talked about in the preseason podcast. I talked about how I was interested in watching how the issue of chewing tobacco played out um, this upcoming season, and the article that I want to talk about this week comes from Jeff Passan of Yahoo Sports, and he wrote an article entitled, How New Laws Banning Chewing Tobacco Could Change Major League Baseball. Uh, For those of you that aren't aware, several cities have passed ordinances to ban uh, chewing tobacco, the use of chewing tobacco at baseball stadiums this year. So, so far, got the uh, both the Mets and the Yankees with New York City, uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and Boston have all put in ordinances ordinances that you can't use chewing tobacco at their stadiums. Um, and then Chicago is um, supposed to join them uh, very soon. And then in 2017, a statewide California law will, t- um, will be in place. So that'll take out the rest of the California teams. And uh, by then, that means a third of the major league stadiums will not allow chewing tobacco. Um, and Passan starts off his article in a place you would not expect. He talks about how in the 1990s, airlines uh, banned smoking on airplanes, smoking cigarettes, which is just nuts that, you know, in the early 1990s or late 80s, you could smoke on an airplane. Um, a miserable experience that would have been. Mm-hmm. Uh, that honestly it, probably would have prevented me from flying. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you're probably more used to it if that is legal in other places, but just thinking about it is disgusting. But airlines, even though they banned it for people riding on the planes, they had to allow it for the pilots. And this was because, you know, as a pilot, uh, you're in control of the plane and anything that would alter your behavior or not cause you to do your best is something that would not be good for the rest of the airplane. So they had to allow it for the pilots but the federal government brought in Dr. Michael Fiore uh, to get them to stop uh, doing it, to stop um, the pilots from smoking. And he's quoted throughout this article, really interesting perspective um, from him. Uh, according to this doctor, Dr. Fiore, who I'm probably mispronouncing, he's quoted as saying that uh, he can't tell how many patients he's treated over the years that have been able to overcome their dependence on booze and other illicit substances, but have been unable to overcome their dependence on tobacco. So according to him, it is a very hard habit to kick. He says, it speaks to what an incredibly powerful and insidious hold it has on people. Unlike booze or illicit drugs, it doesn't change your capacity to live everyday life. And in that way, the insidious hold it has on you can be greater. Uh, So around 30% of players still use it, like we mentioned in the preseason podcast. And it's a big issue, especially because the next collective bargaining agreement is being worked out. Um, it goes into effect next year. And, um, you know, players obviously probably want to keep that around. They were unwilling to budge on that the last negotiation a few years ago. Um, and the owners probably have incentive to, um, you know, have a good image with fans and follow the laws of the cities that they play in. So they'll probably want um, to ban it. Uh, across the league, um, but as it currently stands, you know, with these select cities that have banned it, Major League Baseball has said they could start finding players that um, continue to break the city's laws. Um, I don't think any player has been fined yet. I haven't heard any stories about that. Uh, one um, r- report I saw from a, a Boston writer said that some players in Boston, where one of these ordinances had taken place, um, some of the players in Boston had been given uh, tins to, to fill with coffee pouches to use during the games to kind of help take you know, some of the effect of not chewing off, um, but the players just replaced the coffee with their, their own chew. <laughs> uh, so that didn't work, and I, I assume it'll just get, the tension will get even more heightened as the year goes on, and as players continue to use them. Uh, even last week, Kyle Schwarber was announced before the Cubs game on opening day, pretty special moment, but it's hard to look past He's got a massive dip in his mouth, and you know, obviously he's not playing the rest of the season, but there's tons of players that do this, and so if cities are putting these laws into place, uh, the players are just going to have to start following them and, and figure out a way to, uh, to stop chewing tobacco while they play. 
Yeah, it really is amazing that uh, professional athletes can have a wad of tobacco in their mouth while they play a sport. Like, yeah, well, I think to the, to the doctor's point in the article, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't change your like everyday life. I know, but that's such a. It just becomes like something you, it's like a. Try to think of something in your day that you like. If you took it away, it would just have a massive impact. But it's just part of your everyday life now. Like I smoking is a thing you have to like take part in, and like it's a really hard thing to like participate in every day now. It didn't used to be, but like chewing tobacco is uh, a fairly easy thing. You just put the dip in. Like I could chew at work. I have an office job. I could dip if I wanted to, and not many people would notice. Yeah, and I know like baseball isn't uh, as demanding athletically as like basketball or probably football, but still you have amazing athletes. Well, you know, guys dip in football, right? Really? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah, Adrian Peterson last year. Wow. Became a lot of players do it. I just, that just blows my I, I well, you know, I mean, you're thinking of the massive wad, but you can just put it like right underneath your lip and no one knows uh-huh. that you have it. Did Peterson do it just because he like no, likes he's, the he's, effects? He's, the story came out, he swallowed it, and so he got sick. Mm. And, like, almost had to miss a game, I think. And uh, he said he's been doing it forever. So, hmm. Yeah, that's the type of story that I think you would see. I would guess that you would see more often, but you don't. Yeah, I'm in, I'm a, a fan of getting rid of it personally. See, I don't, you know, I'm not a fan of chewing tobacco, but I don't really have a super strong opinion either way. I think legislating players to stop using them, like it's hard because it's a legal thing to do. And chewing tobacco doesn't have like an, I mean, it's disgusting. Like the, if you spit the um, chew like on the ground, it's kind of disgusting, but like it doesn't have any impact on the rest of people whereas like secondhand smoke is bad yeah i guess some people would say would you say it's more annoying to watch a player like chew tobacco and spit or like constantly adjust themselves during a game what's more annoying i've, I've heard some people like compare that like say that they're I mean, similar and so like why chewing tobacco would annoy me more yeah but like what you're saying it's just an annoying yeah so i you can't legislate that people stop adjusting themselves during games Right, so I'm saying that that would be credence for your argument. Sure. Uh, yeah, so that's just one of the things I'll be watching this year, and uh, I'll probably talk about it when stuff like that comes up again. would encourage you to read the article if you're interested in that at all. All right, that does it for Out of the Box. Next step, we have Paul's stat segment. When you can put some of those categories, you know, you got your OBPS and all that and the VORPs, when they can put in TWTW, and then interface those numbers with TWTW under that category, then you might have something cooking. What, what, what TW is? Yeah, what is that? That's the will to win. <laughs> well, thanks for that uh, Hawk Harrelson intro. It's a great clip. Favorite part of the week. Uh, uh, so as we mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, last week I focused on the three best rookie seasons of all time, inspired by Trevor Story's start. This week I'm doing the opposite. And instead of just looking at uh, the three worst rookie seasons of all time. I'm actually looking at the three worst careers of players who won the rookie of the year. And so my top three, Jerome Walton, is he one? He's not, he's not honorable mention. Okay. Uh, Wait, before we get into it, you got some heat for your, uh, your list. I did. Yeah. You, uh, you left out Fernando an MVP winner or a Cy Young winner and, uh, I think world series MVP winner. Yeah. He was good. Just not great. I don't Are quite you basing that only on war. Uh, War and ERA. What was his ERA? I want to say Valenzuela's was in the threes. And, like, was that high based on, like, league average at the time? It was good. I mean, it was so he it shouldn't, was below he shouldn't have won the Cy Young. I didn't uh, go in depth to look at the other pitchers that year. but Probably could have deserved an honorable mention. It's pretty cheap real estate at the it's, bottom of the article. That's true. Yeah. Um, I, I, I do appreciate the feedback, though. You're not retracting your... I'm not retracting, no. Wow. Uh, all right. So three worst uh, season, three worst careers of players who won the Rookie of the Year. Number three, Bob Hamlin. Have you heard of him, Pete? I have not. Uh, I want everyone to do uh, yourselves a favor and go Google Bob Hamlin and look at a picture of him. He, very large man who wore goggles, and so he, uh, he just looks very funny. Anyways, he was a uh, designated hitter and first baseman for the Royals who won Rookie of the Year in 1994. That was the strike-shortened year. And he had a very good rookie season. He batted 282, had an on-base percentage 
um, up in the high 300s, had 24 home runs all in a shortened season. So very good rookie year. Just after that, he was terrible. Uh, he played just four more seasons after that uh, really good rookie year. And in those four subsequent seasons had a war of zero. So he was a replacement player, essentially. And uh, the year after he won Rookie of the Year, 1995, was his worst season and one of the worst seasons of all time. He hit 168 in 250 plate appearances. Yeah, I'm looking at a picture of him right now. It's a, it's a pretty uh, funny image. He's like the reverse uh, Dick Allen. Yes, very true. Uh, and I feel like his physique fits the name, Bob Hamlin. Sure. All right, so Bob Hamlin's number three. Number two, uh, Joe Carbonaugh. Familiar with him? Uh, kind of sounds familiar. He's kind of a cult icon in Cleveland. He won the Rookie of the Year Award in 1980 for the Indians. Uh, had 23 homers, 87 RBIs, 358 on base percentage. So, wow. again, very deserving of the Rookie of the Year honor, um, but was even worse than Hamlin after that season. Uh, he had a war of 2.4 in 1980, the year he won uh, Rookie of the Year, um, but only played in 70 games total the rest of his career. Hmm. And that is the record. What happened? For fewest games played of someone who won Rookie of the Year. What happened? Uh, injuries and just being bad. What position did he play? He was an outfielder. Um, yeah, so it was done after the 1982 season. What, uh, I mean, and he only was... get 70 games. What injuries did he have that would... I think they said leg and eye injuries. Eye injuries. Uh, this is unrelated, but he, as I mentioned, he's kind of a cult icon hero in Cleveland. He was known for opening beer bottles with his eye socket. That's, that's how the eye injuries happen? No, it just reminded me of that. I, open what, it, what? He, he would open beer uh, bottles with his eye and then drink uh, with a straw through his nose. Was known what what eye injury did he have that wasn't associated with opening aluminum cans? You have to look at it yourself. But you're stating for sure that it had no connection. I would assume it doesn't. This is just why, a, why this would is you just, assume it doesn't. This is just a stat he opened segment. beer cans with his eyes. He stopped playing because he had eye injuries. What what uh how would uh, opening a beer bottle with his eye? Well, the what other players' careers stopped because of eye injuries? That's a good question. And what other player do you know that opened beer cans with his with his eyes? Valid point. I just don't think uh, the two are related. Well, I mean, they could not be, but to just assume that they aren't with no knowledge. I guess I assumed if they were connected, it would have mentioned that in the research. Uh, I don't know. All right, so that's Joe wow. Ch- Joe Carbonaw, 1980 award winner for the Indians. And number one is another royal, Angel Baroa. You may be familiar with the name Pete. Sure. Of our generation, he won the award in 2003. He was a shortstop. Another, another very strong rookie campaign, 17 homers, 73 RBIs, uh, OPS of right around 800 and a 2.7 war season, so a decent season. Um, and he would play the next three seasons as a starting shortstop for the Royals, uh, but he became very bad, a very bad starting shortstop. Um, never again hit more than 11 home runs. Never again had an on-base percentage above league average, and he hit like a defensive shortstop, but actually cost his team uh, 45 runs. Or he was 45 runs below league average as a shortstop over those three seasons. Hmm. Um, finished his career as worse than a replacement player, negative 0.1. Um, for a total? For a total. That was after having a rookie season near three. So Angel Barroa is the winner for worst uh, uh, worst career of someone who won Rookie of the Year. Who are your honorable mention? No honorable mentions this week. Really? Yep. Wow. Uh, I don't think that'll go over well with our readers if you do a blog post on that. I don't think uh, 2015 winners, you, there's much uh, question about whether they'll be good players. Bryant and... Uh, Correa. Correa. Pretty, uh, pretty likely that they'll finish above zero war yeah, for their it won't career. won't take that much time to top. You know, even one season of being good will top that. All right. Well, Paul, thanks for your stat segment. We still don't have a name for the segment, so if you have ideas, feel free to send them our way. Um, you can tweet at us or email us. And uh, we forgot to mention earlier, you can email the show at a foot in the box at gmail.com like Scott did in the opening. So uh, make sure to do that if you've got a question or just a reaction to something that we said. Next up, we have Sounds of the Game. 
All right, next up on the podcast is Sounds of the Game. If you're new to the podcast, this is when I, Peter, uh, take a look at one broadcaster or one uh, moment in baseball broadcasting history and uh, talk about the context of it, talk about the announcer, and then play the, the audio for you on the podcast. Um, so last week we did Hawk Harrelson, pretty entertaining uh, few minutes there. Um, this week, uh, kind of do the opposite of him, we are going to talk about Red Barber. So Walter Red Barber um, lived from 1908 to 1992, and uh, he was a radio uh, baseball broadcaster for the Reds, Brooklyn Dodgers, and New York Yankees. Uh, he grew up in the Deep South, attended the University of Florida, but dropped out to go into broadcasting uh, on opening day of 1934. Um, so Barber would have been just uh, 26 years old. Um, he attended his first Major League Baseball game, and at that game he did play-by-play -play for the first time. So the, the his first game as a broadcaster was also the first baseball game he ever attended. Um, pretty interesting fact there. Uh, the Reds on that day lost the Cubs 6 to nothing. Uh, five years later, in 1939, Barber broadcast the first Major League Baseball game on television, on NBC. Uh, Barber is most well-known for his time with the Brooklyn Dodgers from 1939 to 1953. Uh, during that time, he mentored two other now-famous broadcasters, Ernie Harwell, a uh, Hall of Famer who went on to work with the Tigers and has uh, since passed away, and Vince Scully, um, who made the move with the Dodgers from Brooklyn to L.A. in 1958, and he still works for the Dodgers today. Um, pretty amazing that he's still the broadcaster for the Dodgers. Um, Barber broadcast two World Series in 1948 and 1952 for NBC Television. Barber also did some uh, football broadcasting, especially college football. Uh, he did several um, uh, college football games every year. Uh, because of a contract dispute, Barber switched over um, to the Crosstown Rival in 1954. So he moved from the Brooklyn Dodgers to the New York Yankees, and then he worked with the Yankees for 13 seasons. Um, he worked alongside Yankee legend Mel Allen, who's also in the Hall of Fame today. Uh, in 1966, it was Barber's uh, last season as a broadcaster. A pretty funny story uh, to end his career. Uh, so the, the team, the Yankees, were under the ownership of CBS at the time. Um, and the Yankees finished dead last in the American League in 1966. Uh, on September 22nd, the paid attendance at Yankee Stadium, which holds 65,000 people, the paid attendance was 413 uh, on September 22nd. Barber asked the TV cameras to pan the empty stands as he commented on the low attendance. Uh, the TV cameras uh, did not pan uh, to the empty seats, so they didn't follow his orders. But uh, in reference to how low the attendance was on the air, Barber said, I don't know what the paid attendance is today, but whatever it is, it is the smallest crowd in the history of Yankee Stadium, and this crowd is the story, not the game. Hmm. Uh, so after the game, the, the, you know, the team was owned by CBS, and the game was on CBS, and so CBS executive uh, Mike Burke was the team president. He... Uh, he let Barber go after the game and told him that he would be fired. Uh, so he would never broadcast again the rest of his life, even though at that point he was only uh, 58, uh, so a lot of good years left, um, You know, especially when you look at how long Vince Scully's been doing it. In 1978, uh, Barber and his former partner, Mel Allen, became the first winners of the Ford Frick Award given by the uh, Baseball Hall of Fame. So Barber is, is in the Hall of Fame as an announcer. And uh, fun fact, uh, Barber was played by the boss from Scrubs in the movie 42, <laughs> if you've seen that. Um, bad, bad movie. <laughs> according to some, I thought it was decent. All right, so that is Red Barber. Uh, he's kind of uh, an interesting fellow, and I just wanted to give you a taste of his broadcasting style. So, you know, he, he uh, broadcasts during a time where there's not great... Uh, uh, you know, supplies, I guess, of, of audio online. So it was tough for me to find a clip of him, um, you know, a great moment or anything like that because the audio quality is so bad or they didn't, you know, think to record those games on, on radio. So uh, I am going to play for you the 1952 World Series. Like I said, it was 
um, one of the two World Series that Barber recorded. This was Game 7 between the Yankees and the Dodgers. Um, the Yankees beat the Dodgers in that series. Uh, Paul, did you know, from 1947 through 1956, 10-year span, the Dodgers and Yankees played in six World Series. I did not. That's amazing. And the Yankees won five of those. So 10-year span, six World Series between two teams, and the Yankees won it five times. Wow. Um, and Jackie Robinson, we'll talk about in a second, played in a lot of those games, um, a lot of those years, including this one. So Game 7, 1952 World Series, we'll play first a clip uh, from the first inning of that game, and then we will pick it up um, right before the Yankees won it in the ninth inning. More of the excitement, we don't know. But in any case, we certainly hope so. There goes Joe Black out to the mound, a brilliant right-hander, and moving into the Gillette microphone, a brilliant broadcaster, the old redhead, Red Barber. Thank you very much, Mel. Now you're seeing the starting Brooklyn battery, Joe Black, coming back for the third time, first time since Frank Shea in 47, has a rookie started three games in the World Series. Campanella back of the plate. Gil Hodges is at first base. Second baseman, Jackie Robinson. At short is Captain Pee Wee Reese. Third baseman is the hands, Billy Cox. Out in left field, we have George Shuba. Center fielder is Duke Snyder. And the right fielder, Carl Farello. Campanello back to the plate, and McDougal getting ready to be the first hitter for New York. Back on the mound. He's one and one in this series. One uh, beating Reynolds in the uh, opening game, and then lost to Reynolds. He only gave up one run, but still he got beat because that was when Reynolds pitched a shutout. McDougal, three for 20. And so here is the whole baseball year. Finally pointed up to one single ball game. This is it. Five we go. Bill Dickey, coaching in first base for New York. Frank Cosetti is the third base coach. And here's the first pitch. It's a curve ball hit medium speed to short. Reese. Hodges and one up. One away. Batting in number two position. Number ten. Well, the little shot got to the Yankees. Rizzuto, who is three for 23, getting in. We have one out, no score, and the ball game has begun. Call strike. Barry Getz, back of the plate, working balls and strikes. As manager Stingo, he spent yesterday, especially the late inning, standing in front of his bench, and he's starting out that way today. There's a bunt up toward first base. Hodges feels the ball and makes the put out on Rizzuto, tagging him. So Rizzuto, bunting for a base hit, is out to first baseman on the system and to a goal. Rizzuto may have hurt his right knee a little bit when he went into that slide, trying to avoid... The tie. Did you did. Well, here's Mantle, who's had a great series. He's 8 for 24. His home run was the differential yesterday as the Yankees even the series at three games apiece, winning 3 to 2. Mantle is switch hitter, as you know. Ground ball is hit foul outside first base. Mantle gets down the line. He can run. No balls, one strike. The Yankees are trying to win a fourth straight world's title for the second time in their history. The Dodgers are trying to win their first, and this is their sixth opportunity at it. And it all hinges on today's ball game. There's a high foul out of play. Joe Black is one of the most interesting uh, careers that you could study. The big fellow was a rookie at spring training camp, and so little was known about him that he was not. Now, get this, he was not on the regular roster of the ball club. He, you will not find him in the National League Green Book. The spring training camp roster. That's how little known he was. And um, 
He came on slowly, relieving. He was almost strictly a relief pitcher. This is his third start in the World Series, a one more than he made in the regular pennant race. Pitches high. Ball one. One ball, two strikes. Black did not start at all until the closing week of the pennant campaign when he pitched the game in Boston, which guaranteed the Dodgers no worse than the tie. So that was Game 7 of the 1952 World Series. Um, like Red uh, Barber said, the Yankees won that game 4-2 and continued their dominance over the Brooklyn Dodgers. What a different type of voice. Yeah, so, you know, it's uh, it's interesting, like, not a super captivating broadcast, but that was kind of the style back then. And so um, included a lot of the first inning just to give you a taste for what kind of he sounded like. and Such a fast tugger. Exactly, yeah. Uh, just a different style than than is uh, common or would be considered good today. All right, that does it for Sounds of the Game. Next up, we have the baseball profile, and we will be talking about Jackie Robinson. So this week's baseball profile is Jackie Robinson, and like I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, uh, this week is part one. So it's Jackie's life up until he debuts with the Dodgers in 1947, and then... Uh, next week will be from that point on in his life. Um, so this is Jackie Robinson, Baseball Profile, Part 1. And uh, we're going to try a new style this year. Paul and I will be uh, uh, kind of telling the Baseball Profile together instead of me just reading it to some uh, dramatic music. <laughs> um, so hopefully it's a more captivating um, listen for you. Uh, but here we go, Jackie Robinson. On opening day of the 1947 season... Jackie Robinson started at first base for the Brooklyn Dodgers. At the age of 28, Robinson became the first African-American to play in Major League Baseball since the 1800s. And Robinson was born in Cairo, Georgia in 1919 to a family of sharecroppers. He was the youngest of five children. His middle name, Roosevelt, was uh, named after U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt. And one year after Robinson was born, his father left the family, which caused them to move to Pasadena, California. During high school in California, Robinson developed into a phenomenal athlete. He lettered in four varsity sports, football, basketball, track, and baseball. He was a shortstop, quarterback, and shooting guard. After high school, Robinson attended Pasadena Junior College, where he continued to play all four sports. While attending junior college in 1938, Jackie was arrested for arguing with the police officer after his friend was wrongfully arrested. Robinson received a two-year suspended sentence, but the incident, along with other rumored run-ins between Robinson and the police, gave Robinson a reputation for being combative. While at junior college, Jackie's older brother, Frank, was killed in a motorcycle accident. Of all Jackie's siblings, he was closest to Frank, and this tragedy motivated him to move closer to Frank's family. As a result, Jackie pursued athletics at the University of California at Los Angeles, better known today as UCLA. Robinson was a standout at UCLA, becoming the first athlete in school history to win varsity letters in four sports. On the football team, Jackie was one of just four black players. Shockingly, this made UCLA college football's most integrated team at the time. Robinson led the country in punt return yards in 1939 and 1940. In 1941, he led the Bruins in rushing passing, total offense, and scoring. On the track team, Robinson won the 1940 NCAA long jump. 
On the basketball team, Jackie averaged 12 points per game in 1940 and 11 points per game in 1941, leading UCLA's division of the Pacific Coast Conference. By many counts, baseball was Robinson's worst sport at UCLA. He hit just 097 in one season for the Bruins. During his senior year at UCLA, Jackie met his future wife, Rachel, who was a freshman at the time at UCLA. Despite advice uh, to do the opposite from both Rachel and his mother, uh, Jackie Robinson dropped out of college in 1941, just before graduating. He did this to pursue a job with the National Youth Administration. The NYA was created through FDR's New Deal Act and was focused on finding jobs for people aged 16 to 25. After the government quickly ended the NYA, Robinson played for a couple semi-pro and racially integrated football teams in both Hawaii and California. The attacks of Pearl Harbor in 1941 sent the U.S. into World War II. Jackie was drafted into the military a year later in 1942. Robinson would never leave the U.S. with the Army, but created a stir when he refused to get off a white military bus. Jackie was taken into custody by military police. He was later acquitted of all charges. Robinson's military career ended when he was honorably discharged in November of 1944. Before leaving, he met a former player of the Kansas City Monarchs, a team from the Negro Leagues. The player encouraged Robinson to try out for the team. And Robinson would heed that advice, but not for several months. After leaving the Army, Jackie played football briefly and then accepted the position of athletic director at Sam Huston College in Austin, Texas. As part of his duties as athletic director, Robinson coached the basketball team in 1945. During the basketball season, Jackie accepted an offer from the Kansas City Monarchs. He would be paid $400 per month to play in the Negro Leagues. Robinson played just one season with the Monarchs. He played well, hitting 387 and hitting five home runs in 47 games at shortstop. His performance earned him a spot at the 1945 Negro League All-Star Game. Despite playing well, Robinson hated his time on the Monarchs. The travel schedule was terrible, and they were treated with no respect everywhere they went. After his time in California, Robinson struggled to adapt to this sort of lifestyle. At that time, baseball teams, like the rest of the country, were segregated. There were no black players in Major League Baseball and hadn't been since the 1800s. Several teams were considering breaking the barrier, however. Some of this was because of a sense of moral responsibility, but most came as a result of pressure from local politicians. Robinson participated in one tryout for the Boston Red Sox. The tryout, which occurred at Fenway Park, was a complete farce aimed at alleviating pressure from outsiders. In fact, the Red Sox would become the last team to integrate, 14 years later, in 1959. The Brooklyn Dodgers, led by Branch Rickey, were more serious about breaking the segregation. Rickey, motivated both by moral obligation and the desire to win and fill Ebbets Field with fans, had been scouting the Negro Leagues for years, looking for the player that he would use to break the color line. Highly influenced by black journalist Wendell Smith, Ricky decided that Robinson could be that player. In August of 1945, the two men met in Ricky's office. Ricky wanted to make sure that Robinson would not fight back against the insults and discrimination he would receive if he played for the Dodgers. Jackie reluctantly agreed. After several months of secrecy, the Dodgers made the signing of Robinson official on October 23, 1945. The announcement was that Robinson would play the 1946 season for the Dodgers minor league team, the Montreal Royals. Many players in the Negro Leagues, including greats like Satchel Paige and Josh Gibson, were upset by the signing because they felt Robinson was not the best black player at the time. Over the offseason, Ricky encouraged Jackie to marry Rachel. She would become an invaluable part of his future success. On February 10, 1946, the two were married. The wedding was just days before the start of spring training in Florida. Their honeymoon destination was Daytona Beach, Florida, the Dodgers' spring training site. On their trip to Florida, the newlyweds were forced off several planes to let whites on. Eventually, they had to take a bus the rest of the way. Racial tensions in Florida were incredibly high. Several teams canceled games with the Dodgers because of the potential of Robinson playing. In Sanford, where the Montreal Royals were training, the police chief threatened to cancel more games. As a result, Robinson was sent back to the Dodgers' major league camp in Daytona Beach. Robinson struggled on the field during spring training, forcing management to move him from shortstop to second base. On April 18, 1946, Robinson played in his first professional game. Playing for the Royals, Jackie went 4-for-5 with a home run, three RBIs, four runs, and two stolen bases. 
the Montreal fan base embraced Robinson, creating a safe environment for him and his family. The Robinson family grew by one that year, as Rachel gave birth to Jackie Jr. in November. Jackie finished the season with a 349 average. He was named the MVP of the International League. His popularity helped drive attendance. The games he played in drew more than 1 million fans, an incredible feat for the league. Robinson returned to California for the offseason, playing semi-pro basketball for the L.A. Red Devils. He was just a few months away from changing baseball and the United States forever. All right, headed to the bottom of the ninth. Got a few segments left. First up, Paul, you've got Say My Name. Say my name, say my name. Thanks for the Destiny's Child intro. Uh, Pete, my name this week is a former Cubs player. Okay. Actually, the last pitcher uh, to be on the mound for a Cubs win in the World Series. Not familiar with the 1908 squad. Uh, his name, Orville Overall. Nice. Orville was born in 1881 and made his major league debut in 1905 uh, with the Cincinnati Reds. He was traded to the Cubs in 1906, where he would pitch for five seasons and was a tremendous pitcher. The Cubs won back-to-back World Series in 07 and 08. Uh, as I mentioned, in 1908, he shut out the Tigers on three hits in the series clinching game, which makes him an historic Cubs pitcher. Uh, he did have the nickname of Big Groundhog. Uh, because his birthday was February 2nd, which is Groundhog's Day. Hmm. Uh, finished his career in 1910 and passed away in 1947. Orville overall. Great. Now uh, now I know. I have to ask, did he use uh, shortbread in any dialogue this past week? I did not use it, no. That's a real punch in the shortbread. Nice. All right, uh, my segment, my Yahoo Answer of the Week. Uh, this one comes, the question comes from Frank Y., Yahoo user. Uh, the title of the question is Baseball slash Basketball and Why. And the question reads, I think baseball, but if you give me a good reason, then maybe I switch, so explain. Uh, so if you give him a good reason for either of those sports, he's going to switch to like that one, even though he... Uh, just maybe. Just maybe. Maybe. Um, but right now he's leaning towards baseball. So lots of uh, answers out there. Seven answers on this question. And all of them are baseball. No basketball fans answered this question. Uh, so I will read the answer. It comes from a, an account that does not exist anymore, so there's no username attached to it. Uh, but he echoes the sentiment of what a lot of people said. He says uh, in his answer, Some people say they dislike baseball because it's so slow-moving. But that's exactly why I love it. I love how one inning can take 20 minutes, how every at-bat builds up so much suspense, how a pitcher can throw a no-hitter one day and give up six runs the next day. In basketball, the points are racked up every couple minutes. I'd rather be sitting on the edge of my seat wondering if my team will get score another run. Sorry, <laughs> this is hard to read. Uh, I'd rather be sitting on the edge of my seat wondering if my team will score another run in the next two hours, not the next two minutes. <laughs> another reason I dislike basketball is because it's played indoors. I don't like being cooped up in a huge arena. I'd much rather be outside in the fresh air. Great point. So uh, thanks for the question and answer. That was uh, actually a pretty good answer. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Paul, what's uh, what's your take, basketball or baseball? What's your favorite sport? Uh, in college, I always said basketball. I would say it's more uh, even right now. I might give a slight edge to basketball, actually. That was always your favorite to play, right? Favorite to play. I was best at it. Um, and I'm a, I'm a big fan of the postseason in both the NBA and the NCAA which probably gives it a slight edge. Regular season, I'm probably more of a baseball guy. So you're, you're basketball right now? Slight edge, yeah. Why are we doing a, a baseball podcast? Yeah, that's a great uh, segue to me launching my basketball podcast. <laughs> All right. Uh, that does it for my Yahoo Answer of the Week. Uh, lastly, Paul and I have to pick our teams for this next week. Um, each week we pick a team that we haven't picked previously, and then their record the next week is our record. Um this past week, Paul did much better than I. The Red Sox, going into Sunday, were 3-2. and two. My team, the Athletics, not so good. They were 1-4. When are you going to jump off the A's bandwagon? <sighs> when Billy Bean stopped being the, uh, the GM. All right, so my team this week is the Mets. They haven't been playing well, so I think this is the week they turn it around. 
and it helps that they're playing the Phillies and the Braves. So I'm going with the Mets this week. Paul, who you got? I'm using the opposite logic to pick the Cubs this week. They've been playing awesome, and I think they're going to continue to play awesome. So give me the Cubs. It's not really the opposite logic. You said they've been playing poorly. Well, so the oppo- opposite well. of mine would be a team's playing great, and you would expect them to do poorly. No, that's similar logic. I don't know. Yeah, let I'll, us know. I'll take let the it, Cubs. Let us know what what whose side you agree on there. Okay, so you've got the Cubs. I've got the Mets, and we'll track that and let you know how we're doing next week. And then uh, you mentioned this earlier, but the loser. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so the loser of this battle over the course of the 2016 season has to record themselves uh, singing Better Up as an intro song for a podcast to be recorded in the offseason. Paul and I both uh, aren't great singers or rappers, so it would be very difficult for us to do that, and so the loser of this battle will have to embarrass himself doing that. Yeah, we can't even give the title of an L.A. album and sound yeah, listener Good. feedback last week is that uh, country grandma, <laughs> the way we said it, was uh, was not uh, very, uh, I guess, culturally. was very Midwestern. Relevant. Yeah, very Midwestern, very white. So, um, yeah, let us know uh, how we did this week, Josh. Okay, uh, so upcoming podcast things. Next week we're going to talk about Jeff Passon's book called The Arm, Paul and I. I uh, have to read that this week. I'm 30 pages in. Okay. I have not uh, not got it yet, so I have to do that today. Uh, so we're going to read the arm, talk about it. It's a book about the pitcher and his arm um, over the course of baseball's history. And Man, why, many pitchers, not just yes, one pitcher. Yeah, the pitcher. Well, collectively, the pitcher. Uh, it's getting rave reviews and should be a fun and interesting read. Um, so if you want to read it, uh, go out and buy it and then... You'll be able to listen to our podcast and have many insightful thoughts as well. Uh, should be a good conversation, even if you haven't read it as well. Looking forward to that. Uh, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Make sure to leave us a review there. We would be so grateful for that. Helps get the word out to more people. Uh, you can send us an email at afootinthebox at gmail.com. That's afootinthebox at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at afootinthebox. And you can check us out online at afootinthebox.com. And that website is where you'll find the updated over-under rankings if you play that game with us. And about 50 of you did. So go check that out. It's a tab on our website, afootinthebox.com. We forgot to mention that if you use promo code AFOOTINTHEBOX when you buy the arm, uh, you can get it for the standard price of (laughs) $17.50. Exactly. Um, If you really want our uh, Amazon Prime account, we'll, uh, we'll let you use it. All right, so to finish this out today, Paul's going to do his normally weird thing, and then we will play uh, a very funny thing. I had asked earlier in the podcast if a major league team could go undefeated. I'm not the only one wondering. And so uh, we'll play a funny clip from uh, a radio show in New York. Uh, so uh, you can find the YouTube link in our podcast episode page as well. So go check that out. Thanks for listening, and remember to keep a foot in the box. We'll talk to you next week. Nick in New Jersey. What's up, Nick? Hey, Mike. Uh, I was just wondering with the Yankees and uh, just baseball in general, do you ever see a team going undefeated in the regular season being as dominant as the Pats and the Dolphins where they run the table? 162 and 0? Yeah, like a team being that dominant. Do you think that could could happen in baseball? You're not serious, are you? No, like we we've seen. So wait a second. Wait, 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 have you seen anybody come close to 162 and 0? Well, didn't the Yankees at one year come okay. 120? And okay, no, wait, 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 wait. The Yankees didn't win 120. They won 111 in the regular season. But still, they're only 50 games away. 50, not a game. 50 games away. Yeah, but they had 110 wins. They were right. they were good, but they weren't as dominant as the Patriots or other teams what? that have. Wait, wait. Both are running the table. So you think a team that you're comparing winning 16 games to winning 162? Well, obviously football has less games. So they couldn't have but, won more games. They, they, but football has more, less games, really. Yeah, you, yeah. You, like, you think they have less games? 
No, well, I know football. Right, so they have 16. Right, and the others have 106. So you think a team could go 162 and 0? If they were that dominant, yes. You do. They had like RV. Right. So you think that's a, it, it, prime, right? Because the best team of all, now the best team of all time. I don't know what team you consider the best team of all time. What, what team do you consider the best baseball team of all time? Um, maybe that Murderers Row Yankees team. Okay. Now, what do you think? Now that team played 154 game schedule. How many games do you think they won? Oh, I don't know. Maybe. Uh, How many games do they lost though? How many do you think they lost? Yeah. Maybe. Probably 40. Right. So how would you get from 40 to zero? Well, they would need to be a lot better, obviously. I, I just don't think that we've seen a team that dominant enough take control so, of the regular season like that. I so, think baseball just has a lot of parity, whereas football has less. So you think taking you think if you won like 120 games in baseball out of 162, that wouldn't be like dominant? That would be just what, like mediocre? Oh, no, no, that's that's a great team. Oh, okay. I, I, I agree that that's right. a great team, but I just don't think it's that level of dominance. That's the piece gotcha. that so you think winning 162, you think, is feasible, though? I think it could be done, okay. maybe, maybe in my lifetime. Yeah, maybe. listen, let me, know, uh, uh, let me know when it happens, okay, because I want to, like, watch. Let me know. If, hey, let me know the year it's going to happen, because I want to so do you think a team could go 162 and oh, You think a basketball team would go undefeated? I think that's inevitable. That's a that's a slam dunk, right? Because that's only that's only half a hundred and sixty two games. So that's 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 a slam dunk, right? Yeah, I agree. I, mean, I, I, think, I, agree. I think that will. That's happen. actually been done, you know. I think I think it is. I think it definitely will be tough. No, that's been the, well. Listen, like, the closest well, I was. Think, I think basketball is inevitable. Oh, I, I you know because the Bulls, if you remember the year the Jordan Bulls, they lost one. Yeah, you remember they lost one that year. Yeah, so that, right, they were close. They lost one, and one of the Laker teams lost two. Yeah, so that, right. that definitely shows that that's that's yeah. game. I agree. One or two, I and... agree. Yeah, I agree. Because that bull team with those one. I have a, I give up. Okay. I'm telling you, folks. John and Breezy Point. What's up, John? Hi, Mike. What's happening? What mental asylum? I have is that no guy idea. I have no. Calling idea. from. I have no idea. Anyway, Mike.